Ron DeSantis. If Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war too, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or thirty thousand dollars they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. And now here are your hackers of the week: Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back, Snap Hook listeners! Another edition of the podcast, an exciting edition here for our. Houston fans, and we, we talk a lot of Houston baseball on, on the show, uh, and, th- and this is just a real pleasure to bring on uh, Robert Ford, the, the radio voice of your Houston Astros. Robert, we appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks for having me. I know. Th- yeah, this is an absolute pleasure. I, I know this is an exciting time of the year for you. You know, Hope Springs Eternal coming off a World Series championship. Um, you know, where, where's your head at right now? getting ready to go into, you know, I think this is year year 11 with you in, in the uh, in the Astros system now? Yeah, that's right. My 11th year, uh, starting my 11th season with the Astros. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you always look forward to getting the season going, look forward to calling games that actually count after a month of games that don't count. Uh, so, yeah, it's, um, it's an exciting time of year and looking forward to getting it going. I guess, you know, my biggest question this year, how things have changed and for you guys, I've always wondered, um, you know, with the adaption of the pitch clock, you know, that kind of changes y'all's timing as well in terms of like in between pitches and, you know, how much you are able to talk about, you know, the game or anything around the game. You know, have you found yourself being able to adjust to that or do you think that's something y'all, y'all are still playing with at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, we've all called games where pitchers have worked quickly. Um, this is just a game where now everyone's working quickly. So um, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, sometimes I think the less the less I say, the better. I mean, the focus should be on the game on the field. And there's more of that now than there ever has been before, which I, I like, or at least not maybe not ever has been before, but more than there has been in the last several years. I mean, you know, it's about 20 minutes worth of dead time that have been on average in each game over the last decade. Um, so something needed to change. And so I'm glad that, uh, you know, Major League Baseball has been proactive. You can argue about their methods and how they did it. But I think the bottom line is something needed to be done. And so Major League Baseball, uh, you know, made sure something was done. So, yeah, I mean, it's gives you a little less time to tell stories and things like that. But also, you know, there are 162 of these games. 
So there'll be plenty of time to go through anecdotes and share stories and, and, and go through stats and all of the things that, uh, you know, we've done pretty much since there's been baseball on the radio. I think one of the things that is most interesting with, with broadcasters is a lot of people don't realize that journey may be just as hard or even harder uh, getting to the big leagues than it is as a player, right? I, I attempted it myself and, and topped out in, in the American Association, but there are 32 big league play-by-play radio jobs versus there's 25 spots in every major league roster. Um, and, and radio guys don't retire at 40. You know, they go till 60, 70 sometimes. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what it took for you to, to get where you are? And, and then also, what was it like when you finally got the call, right? When they said, hey, you are going to be the, the new radio voice of the Houston Astros? Um, I mean, the, the, the Reader's Digest version is, uh, you know, seven years in the minors. Got my first minor league baseball play-by-play job um, a year I started it a year after I graduated college um, in 2002 in Yakima, Washington, Northwest League. I was there for a year, then two years working for a radio station in Kalamazoo, where I was the voice of the Kalamazoo Kings of the Independent Frontier League and also called uh, small college and uh, high school basketball and football. And then after two years there, went to Binghamton, New York, and was the voice of the Binghamton Mets uh, AA team for four years and um, also called, uh, you know, women's basketball for Binghamton University and high school football and did a few other things. And then um, four years in Kansas City, uh, working for the Royals flagship station as the Royals uh, reporter for their flagship station and the one who hosted a a pregame and the postgame call-in show um, after every Royals game and um, did that for four years. And then got hired by the Astros in 2013. Um, as far as getting the call, I mean, it was, um, you know, it was the first time I'd ever interviewed with a big league club. And it was the first time I'd ever been to Houston when they flew me in for an interview in December of 2012. Um, and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know, you know, I was just there for a day, flew in that morning, flew out that evening. Um, and, you know, you just try to put your best foot forward, but you don't really know. And then it wasn't until, uh, Martin Luther King Day, actually, in 2013, when I got a phone call from George Pistolis, the team president, who told me that the Astros were still interested in me and I was a finalist and that, you know, Jim Craney, owner, was going to call me, which he did. And basically, Jim wanted to know, you know, why should I give this job to someone with no big league play-by-play experience? And I told him, well, he should because um, I'm going to be really good at this. I mean, more or less is what I said. Um and, uh, yeah, then, um, later that week, I, um, yeah, it was kind of anticlimactic. I got a text message. I texted George Pistolos because my boss in Kansas city, um, we had just gotten a new program director of the radio station I was working at in Kansas city. And I had a meeting with him and he was like that, that Friday. Uh, so it was Martin Luther King day. Then that next Friday, I had a meeting with my boss, my new boss. And he was like, all right, let's get you down to spring training. Let's book flights. Let's, let's get this going. And, Somehow I held them off um, because I, you know, I wanted to find out what was going on with the Astros. And they had told me that they'd let me know later in the week when I spoke to them Monday. And um, so I called George Pistolos and left a voicemail explaining the situation, you know, want to know what was going on because, you know, my boss in Kansas City was ready to, you know, book travel for me to cover Royal Spring Training. Um, wanted to know if that was still necessary. And that night, 
that Friday night I was sitting on my couch watching TV and I got a text from George Pistolis that said, um, um, I'm ready to talk deal. We'll speak Monday. And so it was intri- incredibly anticlimactic when I found, you know, how I found out I was still excited. Uh, but yeah, I found out in a text message and then talked to George, I guess it was that Monday and, um, you know, had a new contract within a, a week or two after that, that I signed and, um, they keep giving me contracts. So it keeps working out. I guess, you know, one of the things that Tim and I talked about this in an earlier episode, and, and I grew up on Gene Elston because I'm a little bit older than Tim and I think Tim is more of a Milo guy, but who are some of the voices, you know, you remember growing up and, you know, who do you think, you know, had the biggest influence on, on your style of broadcasting? Well, certainly when it comes to baseball, uh, the, the biggest influence for me was Gary Cohen, who does Mets games on television now. But when I was growing up, he was one of the Mets radio broadcasters, along with Bob Murphy. Um, and really the two of them probably, because I mean, those are the broadcasters that I listen to the most on radio. And those two heavily influenced me, um, but Gary Cohen even more so. Um, I always liked uh, how direct and crisp his call was. I always liked that he was always extremely knowledgeable, not just about the Mets, but also about uh, the teams that played the Mets. Um, and the Mets were my favorite team growing up. Uh, so, I, you know, I really appreciated, you know, all that knowledge. Um, I, I liked the fact that um, he would get excited, but he wouldn't yell. He wouldn't scream. He would just kind of raise his voice. And that's something that I, you know, I learned to do over time. Um, and uh, yeah, I was, he was my biggest baseball broadcasting influence, uh, especially when it comes to radio. Um, being a Mets fan, I also watched, obviously, as many games on television as I could. Um, and the primary broadcast team on over-the-air TV for the Mets when I was growing up was Tim McCarver and Ralph Kiner. And, um, you know, both former players, um, Tim Mc- or, uh, Ralph Kiner was a Hall of Fame player. Um, Tim McCarver while going to the Hall of Fame as a broadcaster. And um, I think Tim, well, both of them really influenced me a lot. I think with Tim McCarver, it was... Um, you know, he was really, and I didn't know this at the time, you know, I learned this later on as I got older, but he was really the first broadcaster to, to kind of first guess, as they call it, where you try to think along with the manager and talk about strategy and talk about things before they happen and anticipate what might happen as opposed to analyzing things after it happens. Um, and so because he did that, you know, I watched a lot of games with my dad growing up. My dad and I would do that. We would talk about, you know, okay, so, you know, they have a, you know, they have a, you know, left-hander coming up have a left-hander warming up. They're, they're probably going to bring them in here. That's probably what they're going to do. I mean, it got me thinking about the game in that way. Um, you know, and he was very influential in that regard for me. As for Ralph Kiner, you know, Ralph Kiner was just such a great storyteller. And, um, you know, one of the best ever to call baseball in terms of telling stories. And there have been a lot of great ones, for sure. Even more impressive, considering, obviously, his training wasn't in broadcasting. He was a former player, but um, just a tremendous storyteller, um, learned so much about the history of, of the game, um, listening to Ralph Kiner. I remember when I was, I guess, ten, uh, nine or 10 years old, I think it was 10, uh, my mom got me Total Baseball, which was basically, um, you know, a, a huge tome that had all these articles about baseball. And it also had the stats year by year for every player who had ever played Major League Baseball. So Ralph Kiner would talk about you know, Ewell Blackwell and how he was the toughest pitcher I ever faced. And I'd pull out my total baseball and flip to Ewell Blackwell and look up his his statistics. You know, he was a pitcher for the Reds back in the 
in the 1940s and 50s, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, Ralph Kiner was was very instrumental as well um, in terms of just learning about the history of the game and, and helping to get me interested in, in learning more about it. When you got to Houston, you know, one of the things about being in the minor leagues, especially is that that color guy, even if you have one, it's it's an intern, right? Or it's, it's somebody that's uh, not exactly the most professional person in the world. When you get to Houston now, you have you know, a legitimate color guy for the first time. And what was it like having to kind of learn how to use each other, you know, learn what, what Steve Sparks style was and, and kind of learn how to bring the best out of, of both of each other for the for the sake of the broadcast? Well, it was definitely an adjustment. And yeah, I mean, I had um, my last three years in Binghamton, I had a, um, I would hire an intern who would um, work with me on the air and do the middle three innings of play by play. So yeah, that was a lot different. I had some pretty good interns, but um, you know, obviously that's not the same as having someone who played nine years in the big leagues like Steve Sparks did. Um, And it was, it was definitely an adjustment. And I don't think I realized early on how difficult of an adjustment it would be. Um, and it's something that, you know, it's been a process, but, you know, fortunately Steve is just so great to deal with and so easy to work with. Um, and, you know, I think what makes, um, Steve so good is that he doesn't take himself seriously, but he takes what he does seriously and he wants to be good at, at broadcasting. And, and I think also what makes him really good is he's a fan. I think Steve Sparks, you know, because I think the thing a lot of people don't realize about a lot of Major League Baseball players, they're not necessarily fans of baseball. They didn't grow up baseball fans. In many cases, they, you know, they got into baseball because they were good at playing it. Um, but, you know, Steve Sparks would be um, a baseball fan, had, even if he had never played a day in the Major Leagues or a day professionally, because that's just how he grew up. He grew up loving baseball. So I think that made the transition to broadcasting for him much easier. Um, I think for me, one thing that I had to learn was that, you know, yeah, I mean, as a play-by-play guy, you give analysis, but some analysis, a lot of analysis sounds a lot better when it's coming from the former player than it does when it's coming from me. And that was something that I had to learn. And, you know, it's, it's always a process. And I think for me, what made the process easier is the fact that I just don't have an ego about these sort of things. I don't feel like I have to be the one who says everything or has to come up with every point. And I want everybody in the booth with me to feel like they're contributing and to be their, their best selves. So, and I think we've, we've gotten there with, with me and Steve Sparks and our producer engineer, Matt Bolts. I think, you know, one of the more fascinating things when you step behind the scenes, you know, for, for broadcasters is just the, the, uh, the philosophies of the styles. Cause I know Gene Elston was a very much, here's what's happening. And he would just report, you know, the game. And Milo is more of, I guess, what we call a homer. And so, you know, where do you see yourself, you know, in that line, you know, between being, you know, you know, kind of a quasi journalist reporting on what's going on versus this is my team. This is our team. I'm part of the team, you know, I'm rooting for the team. I think that, um, I mean, the, you know, I think the way I broadcast, I think anyone who listens knows that, you know, obviously I want the Astros to win. I want the Astros to win every game. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're not critical from time to time. That doesn't mean that you don't praise the opposition from time to time. Um, and I think both of those things are important because the most important thing is credibility for a broadcaster. 
if every time the Astros do something and I say it's great, no one's going to trust me um, because not everything the Astros do is great. Um, and if I said everything that the opponents do is awful, no one's going to trust me because not everything the opponent does is awful. Um, so I think it's very important to toe that line where you're critical when it's needed for your team and also for the opposition. You praise the opposition when warranted. Um, when some, a great play is a great play. Um, a big moment is a big moment. And I think it's important to recognize that and realize that um, as a broadcaster. Um, and, I, you know, I, that, that's something that I really pride myself on, um, you know, being critical when I think it's necessary. And I think there's a fine line between being critical and being negative. I think being critical is pointing out things. I think being negative is when you you unnecessarily hammer on some something or someone. And that's that's where you don't want to go, um, because I don't think that's what we should be doing. I don't think that's what our listeners want to hear. And I'm not just talking about Astros fans. I think baseball fans in general, um, if you're just hammering on someone constantly, um, you know, that I think that's a problem now. I think the way you avoid that, <clears throat> one of the ways you avoid that is, um, you know, bring facts into the discussion. You know, it's one thing to say, well, this guy hasn't been pitching well. It's another thing to say this guy has an ERA over six. You know, I think things like that are very important. You mentioned bringing facts into Excuse the discussion. For a second. But yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to be critical and to, to back up with what you're saying, if you back up what you're saying with stats, then it's less likely that it's going to come off as negative. So you mentioned those, bring those facts into it. You know, I, I remember one of the, the big jobs I had as a, as a Miley broadcaster. And one of the things I had to teach my interns was how to do the game notes, right? How to get um, notes that are going to give you that statistical information, give you who's hot, who's not, what are the trends. When you go from, you know, working in, in minor league baseball, where that is 99% on, on you and your intern to get produced to now you're with the Astros, right? And they have a, a team that, that puts that stuff together for you. How do you make sure that the data or the information that you find is important that you want to make sure that you talk about on air, not only gets in there, but is, is prominent in that, in that stat pack? Well, I think, um, for me, you know, I mean, yeah, obviously I look at the game notes that the Astros put out. I look at the game notes that other teams put out um, and they're extremely useful. Um, but I, you know, I think also you kind of, you have your own notes. I mean, I have an iPad um, where I have notes on, you know, I use Microsoft OneNote and I have a page on every player in Major League Baseball on the Astros and on their opponents. And I have notes on every team and I'm constantly updating those things. You know, I try to work a series ahead. So, you know, and that's something I learned reading an article about Vince Scully years ago when he was still broadcasting Dodgers games, where he would talk about how he'd work a series or two ahead. So, you know, for example, the Astros open a season against the Chicago White Sox. The next team they play is the Detroit Tigers. So I'm already reading articles in the Detroit papers about the Detroit Tigers, just to get an idea of kind of where they're at and, and what's going on with their team. And, um, once the Astros start their series with Detroit, the series after that's going to be against the Minnesota Twins. I'll start delving more into the Twins and looking at looking at their information and looking, you know, reading what their beat writers are saying and what's, you know, and, and reading what's happening in the Minneapolis papers uh, when it comes to to the Minnesota Twins. So, um, yeah, you you look at the game notes, but you never want to be 
you never want that to be your only source of information because there's a lot of information that just isn't going to be in the game notes. And that's, it's not a knock on anybody. It's just impossible, impossible to put everything in there. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that's very important to always be aware of, um, you know, kind of where you are in the season and, and, and making sure that you have information on your team and the other team from the game notes and also from other sources. Uh, one of the more uh, stickier debates, um, I think, you know, that I've heard, you know, on the radio for more like the, the people do it like sports radio. So we have that huge moment, you know, the World Series, Christian Javier, you know, the, the group of relievers, you know, they work together with a no hitter. And so there's some people that would say, you, you know, broadcaster, play by play guy should never, ever mention that, you know, the team has a no hitter going. Then you have some people say that's ridiculous. It's a new story. It's a developing story. You should, you know, it should be mentioned all the time. So, you know, I think, you know, when I've listened to you, you kind of walk the line between those two, you know, kind of extremes. But, you know, what would your commentary be on, you know, on a debate like that? Well, I think, um, you know, I think for me, yeah, especially on radio, no one can see what's happening. So, um, you wouldn't be doing your job if you didn't say there was a no hitter going or so-and-so hasn't a lot of hit yet. And, or so, you know, this team hasn't gotten a hit. I think that's important because you're telling the story, just like you tell the story if a team had 10 hits. Um, so yeah, I, I, to me, um, that's, that's the way it should be done. And that's the way that I do it. Um, I don't like being cute about it. I don't like, I mean, that's not my personality. Like some people say, well, you can dance around it and people can get the idea. No, I don't, that's not. That's just not how I'm wired. And when I've heard broadcasters do that, that drives me nuts, honestly, because it's like, well, just say it. Like, just say he's got a no-hitter going. Just say he hasn't allowed a hit yet. Like, I mean, I I, I just feel that it's so important to let people know what's happening, um, you know, not this beating beating around the bush, passive-aggressive stuff. Um, I think one thing there that there's a big misconception on is that it's an old-school versus new-school thing because I think a lot of people feel like, you know, the old-school never did this where now the new school does this. And yeah, obviously there were broadcasters and still are some broadcasters who won't say that there's a no-hitter in progress. As I'm sure both of you guys know, Milo Hamilton never did. Um, and actually, Bill Brown told me that um, one of his first years with the Astros, Mike Scott had a no-hitter going. It wasn't the one that he obviously completed in 86. It was after that. He had a no-hitter going. And um, Brownie, you know, he was on TV and he mentioned it a few times and whatever. And he was told after the game hey, so Milo doesn't mention that a no-hitter is happening, so we don't want you to either. And so Brownie stopped doing it at that point because he was told not to. Um, but yeah, I feel that it's something that's very important to do. And as far as the old school, new school debate, um, there's an article that was in the Los Angeles Times. It was a column in the late 50s, early 60s. I think it was the early 1960s. Um, talking to Vin Scully and had quotes from Vin Scully about whether you talk about a no-hitter in progress. And Vin Scully was very much in the camp talking about the no-hitter in progress. You listen to Jack Morris's no-hitter, um, which was called by Ernie Harwell, the legendary voice of the Tigers back in 1984. And I've heard the ninth, I haven't heard the whole game, Jack Morris's no-hitter, but I've heard the ninth inning. And Ernie Harwell said no-hitter at least six or seven times. Like, it was one of those things where if you missed a second of that broadcast, you knew exactly what was going on because he mentioned it several times because it was a big moment and it was a ninth inning 
and he wanted to make sure his listeners were informed. And I mean, you talk about Ernie Harwell and Vince Scully, not only are they two legends, but those are guys who would be considered quote unquote old school broadcasters and they still said it. So I think it's very important to understand too, that this isn't an old school versus new school thing. Um, another example, and this is also in part how I developed my philosophy. I remember um, 2003, I was in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was right before our season was going to start. And our season didn't start till uh, Memorial Day weekend. And um, I was getting notes together, preparing for the season. because It was going to be my first year calling games for this team in Kalamazoo. I was sitting in my living room on my futon and I had my television on TBS and it was a game between the Atlanta Braves and the Arizona Diamondbacks, um, you know, Skip Carey and Pete Van Ruren and all those guys. And, um, you know, I'm doing my notes. I'm half paying attention to the game. And in the fourth inning, they did a, a game summary. And I think the Braves may have scored a run or two by then. I can't remember. Or the Diamondbacks rather may have scored a run or two by then. I can't remember. But I remember as part of the game summary, Skip Carey said, and Randy Johnson's been perfect through four. Randy Johnson was a starting pitcher for the Diamondbacks that day. So I heard that and I'm like, oh, really? Oh, well, let me pay more attention when the Braves are batting. Um, so I did. And so I still did my stuff. But whenever the Braves came up, I paid a little more attention and saw Randy Johnson throw a perfect game. Now, if Skip Carey hadn't said that, I probably would have figured it out eventually. But that, if he informed me, like that, if he hadn't said that, I wouldn't have been as locked in on it. Um, and he mentioned it, you know, as the game went on and all of those things, um, that a perfect game was happening. He certainly didn't shy away from saying that it was a perfect game um, that was going on. But, you know, that was an important lesson to me, too, is people aren't hanging on your every word um, and aren't paying attention to every single pitch of every single game that you call. So I think then it becomes even more important to let people know, um, hey, this is what's happening right now. So Scott mentioned the the Javier no-hitter, and, you know, I think by my count you've had four, uh, you know, fires, the two combined ones, and, and Verlanders where the F is Toro, um, no-hitter. And I, had, I've had, I think I've had five because I've had the two Javier through, started last year, mm-hmm. Verlander fires, and then there was a combined one that was started by um, Aaron Sanchez, um and his first That's start right. with the Astros which was what 2018 no 2019 That's right that's right um yeah. so I've had five yeah So obviously in in your you know in your decade of of Astros baseball the the history of of the team has been fantastic you know when when you get a chance to look at obviously the Astros had a long decorated history obviously not with with World Series titles but there was a lot of of baseball history in this community and then you look at what's happened in the last 10 years and, and, and the city has just kind of been turned on its head uh, in terms of what success really means in baseball. How do you, you know, just sit back and take a moment and, and say, wow, this is, this has been a great decade or, you know, how do you look at, at what's happened since, since you came aboard? Well, I wouldn't say it's been a great decade. It's been a great last seven, last eight years. Cause the first two years I was in Houston when the Astros were not very good, you know, they lost 111 games their third straight 100 loss season, the worst record in Astros history. My first year in 2013, then 2014, they were a little better. They, you know, they they lost 92 games um, and they were ecstatic. The front office was that they lost 92 games um, because that was about what they had projected. Um, so, yeah, it didn't start that way. And obviously 2015, you know, make it pass the wild card round and, and lose to the eventual world champion Royals in the division series. But 
um, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm really, I feel really fortunate to have an opportunity to call 92 playoff games um, in my time at the Astros. I mean, that's insane. There are lots of broadcasters who will work 30, 40 years in the big leagues and never call even half that number. Um, if, you know, so I feel extremely fortunate that I've had this opportunity, but you know, it's funny because people will say to me, um, man, you must really love working for the Astros because they've been so successful. I'd love working for the Astros and being in Houston if they hadn't been successful over the last, you know, eight years or so. Um, I mean, I, I, I really enjoy living in Houston. Um, it's become home. I, like you said, the Astros have a, a, a pretty good history and also a, a very strong and loyal fan base. Um, so yeah, I'd love working for the Astros regarded. It's nice that they've had a lot of the success that they've had, but um, you know, I look forward to every season, regardless of, you know, the expectations or, you know, how you think the team is going to do and all of that. I will say it was a lot easier to call 111 losses in my first year than it would be now, just because everything was new. But even if that happened now, if the Astros lost 111 games this year, I, you know, I'd find a way to make it interesting and I would still have fun with it um, and still enjoy what I was doing. I mean, I, I have my dream job. The fact that my dream job has led to me calling games for a team that's been so successful was just, you know, an added bonus. But I'd still enjoy it regardless. And I, uh, I guess, you know, you kind of dive bombing into that question. Are you one of those people that, you know, you find yourself kind of so focused on what you're doing that it's hard to enjoy what's happening in the moment? Or do you find yourself being able to enjoy, you know, and do the work at the same time? That's a good question. You know, I think as a game is going on, um, I'm so focused on making sure I'm doing everything and conveying everything the way that I want it conveyed and want it done that in the moment, you know, I don't necessarily have time to step back. I think certainly before games, especially big games, when people are filing in and it's starting to get loud and there's all this electricity in the building and certainly after games, after big games, when there's still a lot of electricity in the building, I think uh, certainly that, that that's really, those are really the moments when I can kind of step back and, and reflect on what just happened. Um, but yeah, I think in the moment, um, yeah, I mean, I'll recognize obviously like, Hey, this is, this is, you know, man, this is a great ball game or it's a really tight ball game, that sort of thing. But um, I think I'm just so focused on, you know, making sure I convey things the way I want them conveyed and making sure that I'm on top of information and making sure that, um, you know, I have everything done the way that I want it to be done that, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of time to really think about anything else, which I think in a lot of ways is a good thing because it also means, you know, I think if I step back and thought about it, you know, in game, then you know, there's more likely that nerves or anxiousness creeps in, but that doesn't really happen because I'm just so focused on, you know, the task at hand and making sure that I, I uh, you know, convey things the, the way I want to convey them. I think, you know, looking back, you mentioned the 2015 um, ALDS. I was lucky enough or maybe some look at it, unlucky enough to go to game four of that series. Um, 
But look, looking back at game three, it was the first Astros home playoff game since I want to say like 2005 at that point. Um, mm -hmm. What was, you know, when you look back at that game, you're, you're plugging in the mic, you're doing your sound checks, you're getting ready. But at the same time, the, the buzz in that stadium, I still remember the tailgating, the, the fan fest they had going outside. What was it like kind of feeling all the excitement of the fans of like, hey, our, our team's back. You know, we've got this young shortstop guy. We've got Jose Altuve. We've got, I guess, Colby Rasmus was was hitting bombs at that point. You know, what was the vibe like? Well, the vibe was, man, it was great to finally be home because the Astros ended that season on the road. They had a six-game road trip over seven days to Seattle and Arizona. Um, and going into that road trip, it was extremely hard to pack for it because there were so many different scenarios for the Astros in terms of, you know, they could have missed the postseason. They could be a wild card. They could still win the division at that point. Um, and, you know, who they'd play and where they'd go and what would happen after that was, you know, there were just so many different scenarios. So, you know, were we going to go to New York where it was going to be cooler? Were we going to have to go play a game 163 in Arlington, Texas against the Rangers, which is also very much a possibility. So it was the hardest road trip ever I've ever had to pack for. Um, and so then, of course, they clinch on the last day. They clinched the wild card spot on the last day of the regular season, um, even though they lost. But the um, you know, other teams lost so that, that, you know, the Astros still, you know, wound up clinching that way. And then, you know, and then we're flying to New York after the game, had a day off in New York before the wild card game, but that wasn't even, you know, a true day off because I had to like get all my stuff together about the Yankees and prepare all that stuff. Um, and then right after that game flew to Kansas city, you know, after the Astros won celebrate, fly to Kansas City, had a day off in Kansas City before the division series started. So it was just great more than anything to get home. Um, because, I mean, at that point, we'd been on the road for a week and a half. And not only had we been on the road for a week and a half, but like, you know, the hardest road trip to take is a road trip where you don't know when it's going to end or how it's going to end. I mean, the road trip could have ended in Arizona. It could have ended in New York. It could have, you know, there were just so many different scenarios in play. So, um, yeah, it was just great to be home. Like, honestly, I don't even remember many details of game three. I just remember just being thrilled that, um, you know, I was calling a playoff game 20 minutes from where I lived. Um, and I got to sleep in my own bed the night before. <laughs> I guess yeah, this is going to be a difficult question to kind of get out, but um, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. I remember, you know, the 2020 season was just, you know, as a whole, was just bizarre. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things I appreciated when listening to you was um, when, you know, the Astros, and I think it was the Athletics, if I remember correctly, that where they uh, refused to play the one game uh, following all the, the, uh, the unrest, you know, that went on that summer. And I, you know, I remember hearing your commentary on it and I thought it was, you know, so well balanced and, um, you know, that you, you felt comfortable doing that, but yeah, you certainly, you know, I think it was, it was very well said. And I, I just wanted to see and get your thoughts on that, you know, a few years later, you know, how was that experience for you? And, you know, did you get any feedback, you know, from the organization or people around the league, you know, when you did that? 
Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, so the day before the Astros had been off and the A's were coming to town and they were playing in Arlington the day before against the Rangers. And that was the day that a lot of teams um, decided to not play to protest um, racial injustice. This was after um, Jacob Blake had been killed by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. That was kind of the tipping point. It started in the NBA and then the Milwaukee Brewers, since they play, you know, Kenosha is only about 30 minutes from Milwaukee. It started with the Brewers in Major League Baseball deciding not to play. Um, and then other teams wound up following suit. And so, yes, it was the A's and Rangers. They didn't play that day. And so this had been happening during the course of that week, because if I remember correctly, the Astros A's game was on a Friday. So this had been happening over the course of the week. Um, And when it happened in the A's game, when they didn't play the day before, I remember thinking that night, okay, I'm going to have to talk about this. Um, I had avoided talking about that, you know, about the teams protesting uh, in much detail before that, because, you know, my thing was, yes, this is important, but it also, it doesn't, the Astros haven't done this. It's not affecting the Astros game itself. Um, So I, you know, I hadn't talked about it, but now it was like, okay, the A's just did this yesterday and now they're coming to Houston. So even if you just look at it from a logistical standpoint, you have to talk about it as a broadcaster because, well, it changed their, the A's rotation. There's a reason so-and-so is starting and not so-and-so because they didn't play yesterday. They were supposed to play yesterday, but they didn't. And here's why they didn't play. Um, so there's, there's a logistical part of it. Um, and also the, uh, you know, the, the other part of it for me was, you know, I felt like I needed to say something about these protests that were going on in baseball and throughout the country. Um, you know, as a black man um, who, you know, was deeply affected by a lot of the things that were going on. Um, I remember, you know, watching, starting to watch a George Floyd video and getting maybe, I don't know, 30 seconds into it and being like, yeah, I can't, I can't watch any more of this. Um, You know, I remember watching um, Ahmed Arbery who was gunned down in Georgia Um, I remember watching that. I was home. Um, it was, uh, uh, May of 2020. I was home because my dad, um, you know, my dad was, was, you know, he was in hospice and then wound up passing away. So I flew to New York and I was with my mom when I first found out about the Ahmed Arbery incident. And I remember watching that video with my mom, um, and just being, you know, I, there was a lot that I, a lot of thoughts that I had, a lot of emotions I had, and a lot of it that I just didn't share on social media because I, you know, I mean, the main reason is I don't like arguing with strangers about politics on the internet. Um, But, you know, with the stuff that was going on that summer, I just felt like I just couldn't ignore it anymore. And I did post some things, you know, related to it. I went to George Floyd's viewing in Houston. Um, So yeah, I, there was just, you know, I think like a lot of people had, I had a lot of different emotions. So I started thinking about what I was going to say before the Astros A's game the next day. And I had a lot of different thoughts in my head. And I was like, you know, I really need to write this down. 
So I pulled out my phone and, you know, wrote down some things because my thing was, I generally prefer as a broadcaster, I don't like to script things out. I don't like to read from notes, uh, you know, or, or things word, written word for word. Every now and then I'll put notes, but there'll be bullet points because um, I feel like ex- extemporaneous broadcasting is the best broadcasting. That's when you get the best stuff. That's when you get the best emotion. But with something like this, I felt that um, I wanted to make sure everything was said exactly how I wanted to say it. I didn't want anybody to misconstrue my words. I didn't want to say something that wasn't quite what I wanted to convey. So I wrote down what I, you know, I wrote down a few things in my phone. And um, so I'm like, all right, I, you know, I'm going to read this at some point during the game tomorrow. So the next day, get to the ballpark. Um, and of course, we couldn't go down to the clubhouses still, you know, height of the pandemic, no fans in the stands. And we got word in the broadcast booth, maybe an hour and a half or so before the game that the Astros weren't going to play. And so, and this was not out publicly yet, but we were given a heads up that this was what was going to happen. And so I was like, okay. And I said to, so I talked with Steve Sparks and Matt Bolts, our little crew in the radio booth, um, you know, two guys who were like brothers to me. And, you know, and I said, hey, you know, I do have something that I wrote down that I do want to say at some point. Um, and I'll say it, you know, you know, after this protest happens. So I want, you know, I wanted to make sure I gave him a heads up. Um, and I added to it now that there was going to be, this game was going to be protested, it was going to affect the Astros game. And so, um, yeah, I remember when the game happened um, or when, you know, it was about game time, I just described what I saw, how nobody was warming up on the field. No one was warming up in the bullpen. You know, this is what's going on. And when the players came out, I described what they did about how they put the um, number 42 T-shirts on home plate um, because it was Jackie Robinson Day. um, And you know, just talked about what I saw. And then after I, after the players left the field, you know, I said what I had prepared about, you know, just kind of my thoughts on what was happening and how it was important for the community to listen to us. Um, And by us, I mean, people of color, African-Americans, you know, there's a reason these things are happening and they're going to keep happening unless people listen. And, and I also made a point to, um, applaud what both teams had done that day by protesting. Um, And I said, Black Lives Matter. And that was important to me to say that on the air, you know, didn't equivocate like this is this is this is where I'm at. Black Lives Matter. I felt that was important to say on the air. And then Steve and I bantered back and forth for a little bit. um, And he was very supportive. The organization was very supportive. I didn't get any negative feedback from the organization. Honestly, I didn't get much negative feedback at all, even on social media. Um, I think most people, you know, even if they don't understand where I was coming from, at least respected where I was coming from. Um, And, um, you know, I really, I really appreciated that. But I remember leaving the ballpark that day and I was exhausted. It it felt like I had called the game because... It was just such an emotional, it was just such an outpouring of emotion. Um, But yeah, I remember leaving and just thinking, man, I feel like I just called the game, but it was just, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty emotional and it's, um, it's something I'm very proud of. You know, 
it obviously was a, a big moment in sports history, a big moment in huge sports history to have our, our guy come out and, and say those things. And, you know, we definitely were, I was appreciative uh, to hear it from, from my guy, you know, to, to come out and be like, okay, you know, this is the right thing to do. Um, kind of shifting a little bit, I, you know, other things that you say, right. I think there's no sweeter words in, in Houston Astros years than uh, see you later. And obviously that's your, that's your home run call. Every, a lot of the great broadcasters have their own and, and whether it's, uh, you know, Sia and in, in the New York Yankees or Holy Toledo from Milo, how did see you later, you know, kind of become your, your go-to for the home run. That is a very good question. And I wish I had an answer. What I do know is that it wasn't something I said in the minor leagues, at least I'm pretty sure I never did. Um, I started saying when I got to Houston, I couldn't tell you when, um, but yeah, I think it's one of those things. I said it a few times. I like the way it sounded and I just kept saying it. Um, and you know, as those who listen to Astros radio often enough, no, I don't say it after every home run, you know, cause again, I think this goes back to my philosophy. I feel like things sound better when they're not completely scripted. Um, you know, just kind of, you know, just kind of go with the moment. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I, I wish I could tell you how it developed. I also, when I started broadcasting in the minor leagues, I remember before I broadcast my first game, thinking a lot about what my home run call would be. And I came up with various things and I hated the way they sounded because it just sounded so contrived to me. It didn't sound natural. It sounded very forced. Um, and so after that, my first year in the minors, it was kind of like, you know what, just say what you feel, just say what comes to mind. Don't try and force it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I said various things when guys hit home runs. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, see you later just kind of developed and, um, you know, I never expected that people would be wearing t-shirts with it on it, but, um, I mean, I'm very appreciative that people are, um, but yeah, I, uh, yeah, it's just, I wish I had a better story as to how it came about, but I think, the best calls come about that way. A lot of times where it's just very organic, where you say something and you like the way it sounds. So you're like, well, let me say this more often. I think one of my favorite real quick, Scott, one of my favorite things the Astros do is um, I specifically remember the, the walk-off homer that Altuve hit off Chapman in, in 2019. And um, they had the shot of, of you from behind in the booth, just see you later. See you going crazy. What's it like to, you know, see that tweet go out? Because obviously it's an exciting moment for you as a broadcaster. We can feel that excitement on the other end, on, on the radio end, or, you know, people like myself, I uh, I mute the TV during the playoffs and I and I link up um, you and, and Steve Sparks through through Bluetooth radio because I, I cannot stand the national TV broadcast. But what's it like when you go and, and you see that video of yourself just living in the moment enjoying that win and, and going crazy for, you know, your guy. Well, a lot, you know, those calls a lot of times are like out of body experiences and not necessarily the calls themselves, but how I react. Um, like without that video, I mean, I knew I stood during the home run, but without that video, I wouldn't be able to tell you when exactly I stood up or, you know, I don't remember, you know, raising my arm up in the air as I stood up. I don't remember any of that. Um, you know, I was just so locked in on, on calling it and just the, the gravity of the moment, you know, particularly with that one 
you know, in 2019, because, you know, I mean, there've only been a handful of players who have hit um, home runs that have sent their teams to the world series. I mean, that's a pretty cool moment. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I did the moment that it's proper justice. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I love that, you know, those videos exist. Um, I, you know, it was Kevin Eschenfelder actually who recorded that video. Um, but a lot of the subsequent videos have been recorded by Matt Bolch, you know, our great producer and engineer. Um, and I, I, you know, I appreciate it more because it, I don't remember what I did in those moments. So it's nice to have video evidence of, oh, okay, I stood up then, or I did this, or, you know, what, what have you. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really cool. I mean, it's what we all dream of as broadcasters, right? You know, you dream of having a moment like that, that you get a chance to call and you dream of, you know, hopefully nailing the call. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's awesome. And fans love that stuff. And, you know, fans love any sort of, um, you know, inside access, you know, access to areas they don't normally get access to. So I think that's why fans respond to stuff like that. And not just the Astros, you know, the Mets have, they actually have it sponsored. They have a booth cam in their TV booth. And so, um, you know, you, you, you get, um, you know, it's sponsored by, I think, Dunkin' Donuts. And so they'll have booth cams for like big moments that happen over the course of the Mets season. And it's always kind of neat, even as me, me as a fellow broadcaster to see, you know, what Gary Cohen's doing, what Keith Hernandez is doing, what Ron Darling is doing in those moments. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's, I think that stuff is awesome. Um, as you're traveling with these guys, I mean, you obviously are going to have different relationships with these guys, you know, than, than people like Tim and I are, you know, just watching and, and listening and, uh, do you find it, you know, harder to, you know, to, yeah, I guess, to, you know, to separate that out, you know, since you know these guys on a personal basis, or do you think that makes um, makes your job easier, you know, knowing them, you know, on that level? No, I mean, I think, um, you know, I think it's a very professional relationship you have with players in the major leagues. Um, you know, I mean, they're they're in they're in a different atmosphere than I am. Yeah, we share a space from time to time, but. You know, I mean, for one, none of them are my age. I mean, I'm almost 44 years old. So it's not like when I was a minor league broadcaster where I was the same age as a lot of the players, um, you know, during my minor league career. Uh, so, you know, so there's that separation. There's the age gap. Also, I think in the minor leagues, you spend a lot more time directly with the players because you're riding the bus together. Like, most of the time that I was the radio guy at AA Binghamton, the guy who sat behind me was this pitcher, Tim McNabb, who I'm Facebook friends with to this day. Um, you know, great guy. Uh, you know, you know, so, and then, you know, you don't have a car. And this was in the days before Uber and cabs were kind of expensive. And so you'd wind up going places near the hotel, whether it was a restaurant or a bar or after the game or whatever. So you're, you were just in the same orbit as, the minor as the guys in the minor leagues more so than you are in the major leagues where the cities are bigger. You have more options. You can go more places. There's Uber now. Um, so yeah, I'm not hanging out at the same places that the players are. Um, you know, sometimes it happens, but it's not the way things go. Um, but yeah, I've always kept things professional. Um, I can go in the clubhouse, um, really any time before games, but I generally stay away from the area where the players are, except when the media is in there um, during the hour that the media has, just out of respect for the player space and for their preparation. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I'll talk to guys. I, you know, the great thing is I don't interview players on a regular basis. So if I'm coming up to a player, they're not thinking, oh, this guy wants to interview me. It's just me. It's like just making small talk or asking them about something that happened the day before or what have you, or asking them about their background. Um, I try to keep it pretty light and pretty simple. And I think guys really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, you know, I still, I mean, this is going to be my 22nd year calling baseball and I can count on one hand the number of players in my career who've ever had anything to say to me about something I said on the air. And the vast majority of those times, it was very innocuous. Like I remember one time when I was in Binghamton, I had a player who said to me, you know, there was a ball that a player didn't get to and it was scored a hit. And I said, you know, something, you know, you should have made that play. I'm surprised they scored that ahead. And so the player later, he was like, you thought I could get to that ball? And I was like, yeah, I did. And then he explained to me, you know, he was like, well, he was like, that last hop was really tricky. He was like, it was going, you know, the field that we were on the road. It was like that field, you know, that field, the field conditions weren't great. And that last hop kind of took off on me. And, um, and I was like, oh, okay. I was like, well, I said, thanks for telling me. I said, because I said, I said, and I told him that player, I was like, and there were a couple of his teammates around. And I said, look, if stuff like that happens, let me know because that's more insight for me. Um, you know, and I think they really appreciated that because it wasn't me saying, you know, oh, you, you know, you're an idiot. Like, you know, are you, you, what are you talking about? You're just making excuses. And maybe they were, but it's like, that's still more information for me. So that way, if something like that comes up again, I can relay that information. Um, with the Astros, I have not had a single player come up to me complaining about anything that I've said on the air. Um, I've had guys ask me about, you know, various things that I said or what have you, but no one's ever like complained to me about something I said on the air. And maybe they're complaining to somebody else, but <laughs> they haven't complained to me. Um, but I, you know, and I, and if people complain, I, I welcome that. I mean, I'm on the field during batting practice most days. I'm around, I'm present. So, um, and part of the reason I do that is so no one can say, oh, well, you know, this guy's never even around us. How can he say anything about us? I think it's it's so important too that people understand at the end of the day, you know, broadcasters are you're you're doing a service and to the people who can't be there, right? And that's that's your thought process the whole time is I'm not doing this for the players. I'm doing this for everybody who's interested who cannot be here. And and for those of us who started the Meyer Leagues, a lot of those broadcasts were not heavily listened to, especially the road radio ones, by people who are not the players' parents. And so you know, if, if you heard a complaint, most times it was from a parent or it was from uh, I used to get texts because Tyler Matzik was on our team. I, I would get a text from Tyler Matzik's brother midair, um, you know, saying, hey, I actually was the better. I was the better Matzik growing up and, you know, things like that. And so it was it was funny stuff along that nature. But you don't really um, people who are complaining are. I got one from a guy when I worked with the sugar at the then Sugarland Skeeters, a guy lived in Pennsylvania, listening to my broadcast didn't like one thing I said. And it was like, you're living in Pennsylvania, listening to a random Sugarland Skeeters broadcast. Like at the end of the day, I think we won because we got you in as a listener. And so um, a lot of times people don't realize that, you know, this is a service that that you're doing for people who can't be there, can't see it physically. Um, and it's, it's not something that people really are complaining about. And I, I think you do a great job of um, staying true to the game, staying honest. And if something happens during the game that you feel needs to be commented on, you do it. 
Uh, I do think it's interesting too. You mentioned the, you know, being able to take Ubers and stuff like that. And, and nowadays in the miners, it's, uh, I, don't, I don't know about other guys, but for us, it was with our per diem every day of 20 bucks a day. We, uh, we weren't taking a lot of Ubers. So we were, we were hiking to whoever had the, the happy hour specials or anything like that. Um, and I know I, I always enjoyed the, the post-game broadcaster meal. Uh, is that something that still is around there in the major leagues? Do they feed you guys pre and post game still, or is that uh, solely a, a minor league um, option? So for one, um, you talk about players, families, um, and friends listening. That still happens in the big leagues. And most of the things players hear about what happens on the air, or what's said on the air, they, they hear secondhand, which can always be dangerous, right? Because, you know, it's, they didn't hear it firsthand. They're just hearing what someone told them and what someone told them may not always be accurate. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, obviously the listening audience is greater, but that definitely still happens where players hear from significant others or friends about, you know, they said this about you on the air. Um, and not always in an accusatory way either. It's just kind of like, Hey, this is what they said. Um, yeah, I think, um, so, yeah, I mean, every ballpark has media dining, um, so you can eat before the game. Um, and, you know, use, that's usually my dinner or if it's a day game, my breakfast. Um, and um, after the game, um, there isn't like a formal like meal for broadcasters. Um, you know, it's not like the players in the clubhouse where, I mean, nowadays you see players leaving with like, you know, you know, multiple styrofoam containers of food to, you know, eat after the game or take home to their family or whatever. Um, you know, we don't have access to that. Um, you know, I, I mean, sometimes I'll eat after a game if I'm really hungry. You know, I certainly on the road know all the places in various cities where I can go where they serve food late. That's a very important thing to know. Um, I generally don't eat breakfast. I always joke if I have three meals, it's lunch before the game and after the game. Um, and sometimes I don't, I don't eat after the game. A lot of times I don't actually. Um, so, uh, yeah, there isn't that tradition, um, of broadcasters having a meal after the game. Um, generally don't get together with other broadcasters after games. It happens from time to time, but it's not something that's like a regular occurrence. Definitely happened more when I was in the minor leagues, particularly with, you know, the guys that I was, you know, closest with. Um, I mean, one of my best friends to this day is, you know, still the radio guy in Harrisburg, Terry Byram, who um, uh, started in the Eastern League the same year that I started with Binghamton. Uh, but yeah, I think, um, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that certainly changed a little bit. And obviously our per diem is a lot more than it was when I was in the minor leagues kind of hard to be less than it, than it is for that minor league per, per diem. I had, I had teammates uh, who were eating roller gas station hot dogs just to stretch it out the best that they could. But um, I, I know you've got so much to get ready with opening day uh, coming at you tomorrow. I just kind of want one more question that we can kind of wrap things up a little bit, but obviously when Jose Altuve went down, you know, everyone in, in the city of Houston's collectively holding their breath, wondering what's next, but Ideally, you know, this is a great opportunity for some young ball players to, to come in and, and get a chance to get some ABs early on in the season. And I, I guess Scott and I are just wondering, you've been been at spin training, seen a lot of those guys taking the reps. Um, there are some some younger guys who have made the roster this year. 
you know, who are you, who are you keeping an eye on in this early part of the season that, you know, is hoping to take full advantage of their opportunity? Well, I think um, I, I'm, I'm really excited to see what Jeremy Pena does in year two, because um, year one was really impressive, particularly the last couple of months. Um, you know, even though his regular season was a bit uneven at times, you saw the talent, you saw the ability, you saw the promise. Um, I think he's going to be even better this year because it looks like he's starting to learn how to be a little more selective at the plate. Um, so I'm really excited to see what he does in year two. Um, I'm really excited to see what Hunter Brown does with hopefully a full season at the big league level. Um, he's as talented of a starting pitcher pitching prospect as the Astros have produced over the last, you know, two or three years or so. Um, and they've produced quite a few good ones, but he's as talented, if not more talented than, than a lot of those guys. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited to see him get out there um, and get an opportunity and, um, you know, and see what he can do, uh, you know, with 25, 30 starts in the big leagues, hopefully for, for Hunter Brown this year. Um, so I'd, I'd probably say those are the, the two that I'm, I'm most excited about, at least as the season starts, you never know how the year is going to develop injuries, create opportunities, you know, poor performance or good performance creates opportunities for people. So um, you know, that's the fun thing about baseball season and can also be maddening is you can try and predict what's going to happen and you may have a decent idea, but, you know, you never know until they play the games. Well, Robert, we really appreciate you joining us. It's It's been a pleasure. I, I know I've been listening to you for 10 years and sometimes it feels like you know that guy before you even get a chance to, to talk to him just because um, of, of how long I've been listening to you. I, I mean, I pay for uh, the MLB app now so I can can still hear you, even though I don't live in Houston anymore. So really appreciate you coming on and, and helping us get ready here for, for Astro season. Um, I guess one last quick thing, 2017, the, uh, the banner unveiling didn't exactly go uh, as planned. You know, the, the sheet got a little caught up, didn't quite come down all the way. Uh, I've seen a, a picture of, of, of this year's banner. It looks to be a little bit different setup on how they're going to be bringing that one down. Um, do you have any kind of inside information on, on a, you know, a, a, a trial run of the, of the banner pool or anything like that for us? No, I have, I have no idea. I'm just going to show up tomorrow and see what happens. Just like, just like all the fans will. <laughs> awesome. Well, Hey, we appreciate it again. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I really look forward to, to hearing you every single day and, um, hopefully we keep hearing you all the way through October again this year, just like we did last year. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right. We appreciate you joining us. And uh, it's been a great edition here of the Snap Hook. We look forward to having everybody back next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Snap Hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. Wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snaphook.